I might just mention that um, the speaker to begin with is Jesus. It's at the Last Supper and it's the night before our Lord Jesus Christ was uh, nailed to the cross to atone for our sins. So the night before. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogues. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because people do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much to say to you, uh, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive them uh, from me, uh, what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more. And then, after a little while, uh, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then uh, after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father... They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand uh, what he is saying. Jesus saw they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, a little while and you will see me no more, and then after a little while uh, you will uh, see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, 
but your grief will be turned to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born uh, into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will not, no longer ask anything. Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be uh, complete. And then we turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 14 uh, through 20. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you, that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may share uh, his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation uh, for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is no habit at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have yet, we wait for it uh, patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us uh, through wordless groans. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two uh, long texts, but remarkable texts. Amen? Let me pray. Father, teach us how to live, how to love, and how to learn to be followers of Jesus Christ. Come down, O love divine. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing. Shape our hearts to be more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today is Whit Sunday, or otherwise known as Pentecost Sunday, or the day of Pentecost in the church calendar, which is seven Sundays after Easter. Did you know that? Seven Sundays. Uh, on this Sunday, typically, churches remember that Jesus did not leave his disciples as orphans after his death and resurrection. He came to them by sending his spirit or the counsellor or the advocate. On the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' last supper, it was an ancient Jewish festival originally, but on that day, something new happened. And that moment is recorded in Acts chapter 2, a sort of fireworks display, signaling a new activity of God in the lives of ordinary believers like you and me. A new activity that led to the growth of Christianity from a handful of people in an upper room to 400 million in 400 years, with billions of believers today, such that 2,000 years later, we now delight in the coming of the Holy Spirit every day, and indeed we set aside a day for it. We are talking here about the presence of God animating lives. On that first Sunday, people thought the disciples were drunk. They weren't. We're talking about the third person of the Holy Trinity challenging lives. People who heard Peter's teaching that day, we're told, were cut to the heart. They said, brothers, what should we do? We've got to do something. If Jesus Christ is Lord and has poured out his spirit, we've got to do something. God alive in human hearts. Now, what does all this mean? That's what we're going to be talking about today. I won't pretend this is not a comprehensive sermon on the Holy Spirit, as if such, such a thing exists. I'll limit myself to two things today. One, I'm going to talk of the work of the Holy Spirit from Romans 8. Never done that before. Partly because it adds to what we learned last week about hope for the future of the universe from Rob last week. I'm going to add to that. And secondly, I want to show the work of the Holy Spirit giving, transforming hope in suffering. I want to talk about suffering and hope, partly to stay on the theme for this year. I finished reading Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl last month, a book I've been meaning to read for years. It's not a long one. I read it in part because of our topic for this year. His book is a, a version of Transforming Hope. 
um, a powerful alternative, really, to the Christian gospel, and yet can be read in light of the Christian gospel. If you don't already know, Dr. Frankel was a Jewish-Austrian psychiatrist who was placed in concentration camps during World War II in Auschwitz and other places, and he wrote about his experience afterwards in this book. The first half of the book is about his experience, and it is harrowing. How do you hope when you've been stripped of everything? He describes how holding on to hope was a life and death choice for the prisoners. Those who lost hope, he reckoned, I quote, developed a certain look in their eye, a fatalism that inevitably ended in death. They experienced what he called an existential vacuum an existential vacuum, his term for a complete loss of meaning or loss of hope, a sense that nothing really matters anymore. And uh, he adds some to his book from the 1970s, a lecture he gave where he says, you know, there we were stripped of everything as Jewish um, victims of the Holocaust. He says in the 1970s, you got all these, speaking to an American audience, American teenagers who have everything and yet still experience an existential vacuum, a loss of meaning, a loss of hope. I mean, haven't you seen that? Even with people who have everything. His solution was for an individual, each individual, to find meaning in something good and to hold on to it. For him, it was the thought of seeing his wife again, which he didn't. No one, he said, can take that Finding meaning something in good, no one can take that away from you, he maintained. Even if they strip everything else away, this is how he describes how he survived the camps. And his form of psychology developed after his release was about looking forward in hope rather than back to the past. And in that sense, he was describing something new, something different from the then popular Sigmund Freud, who looked back to childhood. Now, I'm no expert, not a counselor or a psychiatrist, but I think I've got that right. Please tell me later what I got wrong. Followers of Jesus are gifted their hope by God. They don't have to discover, you don't have to discover your own meaning. And this hope, let's call it capital H, hope, is eternal, it is comprehensive, and it is from God. It comes through the promises of God, through the life of Jesus, the certainty of his coming, it has an end that transcends the individual that allows the individual to experience enormous suffering and yet hold on to this hope, this resurrection hope. It is the hope that comes through Jesus Christ, not a hope among many. It's a living hope and it comes to the individual through the gift of the Holy Spirit to be touched by God and it's a miracle. It is a gift and not everyone in this room has it or rather him. So lean in and listen close. Good news ahead. I'm going to read what was read last week and then add to it, it is a profound hope, and it's right here. Romans 8, verse 18. Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now imagine having that perspective. I, cons I consider, I have it in my mind that 
the present sufferings, which are huge, by the way, are, in some sense, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, imagine considering life thus. Our present sufferings, which, you know, feel weighty, but they are weighty, like in scales. He says, you compare it with the glory that will be revealed in us, they're not worth comparing. The real gravitas or weight is the glory that will be revealed in us. If you had this hope, you will be less governed by the present, the weight of the present, less driven by fear. You'll be leaning forward into the hope that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul reiterates this same concept elsewhere when he says in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, for our, he says, for our light and momentary troubles, <laughs> read 2 Corinthians sometime. Read what Paul went through. He calls them light and momentary troubles are achieving for us what he calls an eternal glory that far outweighs them all, the weight of glory. And so he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. C.S. Lewis warns against fixing your eyes on what is seen when he says, do not let your happiness depend on something you can lose. And what is that hope? Verse 19, this is last week's text, for the creation, the whole creation, waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Last week, creation on its tippy toes. Why? Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, Genesis 3, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You hear that? We say it in the Nicene Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So let's look at Romans 8 in three parts. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number one, if you're writing notes, his work is personal, verses 14 through 17. He, the Spirit, leans you forward in hope, verses 18 through 25. Some interesting stuff there. And he helps you now, verses 26 through 30. You with me? Firstly, the Holy Spirit's work is personal. This is personal. It's not mere religion. You have a personal pronoun, and so does the Holy Spirit. He is not an it. He is a him. You learn that from Jesus in John 16. This is personal. Paul writes that if you are a Christian person, a follower of Jesus, found in Christ, then you have been touched. You are not led then by law, the written code, script, you're not led by others, no dictators, despots, Caesars, or otherwise. You're not even led by fear. You are led by the Holy Spirit of God, and you are a child of God that is adopted as God's heir. The meek, it turns out, will inherit the earth. I want you to read it with me, leaning in, and listen for its implications. Verse 14, 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Right? There's Exodus language here. You're not governed anymore by Pharaoh or by any other fearmonger or even by the written religious code. Verse 15, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Oh, no. No fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship rather than slavery to fear to a pharaoh. So no more fear. You are not a slave. Rather, this internal work of God has made you a son. And as we learned last week, this is, if I can put it this way, intentionally gender-exclusive language because in that day, a son meant that you were an heir or adoption in order to inherit. So sons were heirs, heirs, and so all of you, men and women, are all in Christ, if in Christ, heirs of God, and then intimately connected to God, and by him, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Such intimate language. Dad. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You know deep down that you are his. And if that's the case, then you get what belongs to Christ, which in this life includes suffering, verse 17. Now, if we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What does that mean? If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. He went down and up again, and you'll, you'll go down and up again too. It's the nature of life against the backdrop of the promises of God. So the first thing you learn in this text, this is personal, not just about Christian values, certainly not about religious people controlling you. Jesus said on the eve of his death about the Spirit, he said, I will not leave you as orphans, I'm going, but I'm not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. He said, I no longer call you servants because a servant or slave doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. First, work of the Spirit is personal in you. Secondly, he, the Holy Spirit, leans you forward, verses 18 through 25. He leans you into a future hope. See, we are co-heirs looking for the glory that we will be revealed. But as we learned last week, this means nothing less than the renewal of all things, to use Jesus' own words. We are presently suffering, verse 18, and so is the whole creation. We join creation. But the suffering is, quote, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. So an end is in sight, a thing that gives suffering perspective and life meaning. I think the very thing Viktor Frankl beautifully and eloquently describes is offered to us comprehensively by God as a gift in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we looked at this last week. Download last week's excellent sermon. But in verses 18 through 23, we find the creation itself is personified, sort of like the planet. Verse 19, wait, waits in eager expectation. It's subjected to frustration. 
verse 20. It's groaning, as in childbirth, like a human being, verse 22. But the point I want to make today, the new point on Pentecost Sunday is this. As with creation, so with the human soul. I'll say it again. As with creation, so with the human soul. I'm going to read the text. In fact, I'll put it up on the screen so, you, so it's real clear. You know, for those of you that didn't put your heads down in the Bible, here we go, right there. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present times. Drawing on Genesis 3 language and describing an experience you know about this planet. But, verse 3, not only so, but we ourselves, like the, like, like the whole creation, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, oh, it's not all beer and Skittles. It's not all the Holy Spirit came upon me and then I felt just pure, pure, you know, free of suffering. No. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. The creation is groaning and waiting and wanting something better, and we are too, like, like being in childbirth, groaning and waiting and wanting the thing to come, the one to come, our, which is our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, and we do so as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit, a down, posit, a down payment, so suffering is the work and the work of the Spirit are intimately related. He leans us forward. Now, there's a lot going on in Romans 8. It's dense, beautiful, profound, and rich. But just simply, there's a link between the experience of giving birth and the future of our earth and of our lives, and in a few moments, the activity of the Holy Spirit. There is really, it's linked by groaning. Creation itself, groaning, subject to futility. And there's a birth to come, something in the future, not a newborn baby, but a liberated world. And that just means that the slow descent of the world in decay, is the language Paul uses, isn't the only future offered. No, there's something much better. And it comes because of the resurrection of Jesus. I've been present at the birth of my four children, which makes me a Gen Xer. Um, and here are some things that are present at birth without getting into too much detail. Waiting is present at birth for the child to be revealed. Lots of waiting. Frustration in the process. Groaning, no getting around that. Well, expectation. Anticipation, hope, excitement, and then, then at some point, a liberation, if I can put it that way, a child born into a new reality from, from this to, to a new reality. Joy of the newborn who has been revealed. I've seen it four times. Paul writes these words, I believe, based on the words of Jesus Christ. Ray just read it to us, John 16. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. That can't be true every time, but I am told, not having experienced it, I've seen it, that this is regular. 
a baby. So with you, he says, Jesus says, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again after my death in resurrection and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. The present reality of our, world, of our world is groaning and we join in, but it is a prelude to the world to come, life everlasting, verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, which is where it was concluded last week. Work of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he helps you now. Look at verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In the same way that the creation groans, and in the same way that you groan, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Next verse, the Spirit groans for us and in us and towards God in intercession. We do not know what we ought to pray for. I know some of you experience enormous suffering and when it comes to you, you don't even know what to pray. I know some of you have experienced extraordinary depression. The black dog and somebody says to you, have you prayed about it? And you're like, I don't even know what I'd pray. But we're told the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. The Spirit of God has word, wordless groans for the Father. The Father understands. This is beautiful. It's mysterious. It's a mystery. The King James Bible says groanings that which cannot be uttered. ESV, groanings too deep for words. RSV, sighs too deep for words. Remember that? J.B. Phillips, agonizing longings which never find words. Eugene Peterson's the message. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. So the creation is groaning and waiting and wanting something better, and we are too, and so is God. This means that you are not alone. God has never abandoned you. Christ has never left you as an orphan, even in the middle of the suffering. At a previous church, I knew another minister. I was the youth minister, and he described to the youth ministry that I was caring for the experience of losing his 25-year-old daughter to a flash flood in Artaman. A body found several days later in a tree. He explained this and he addressed this to the teenagers that I was caring for. And he said to them, Jesus has never let me down. And I was sitting up the back, you know, the kids don't have their funnel lobes formed and they're half listening, you know. But I'm sitting up the back, my funnel lobes are formed and I'm thinking, really? Joe, really? Can you really say that? So I asked him afterwards, how did you say that? And he describes something along the lines of what we're reading today. This is how you say it. And how you could say it, and, and how you could say it too, if you come to Christ, maybe even this morning for the first time, if you are found in him. God uses the now, even in suffering, to make you more like Jesus, trusting God even in the darkest moments. And there's nothing he doesn't use. Look at verse 28. And we know that in all things... 
God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or chiseled in the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many sisters and brothers. The good God uses all things for, name it, he uses it to make you more like Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his son, more like God. Made in his image, the human being God always intended human beings to be. What that means is that the power that raised Christ from the dead is currently at work in you. In Colossians 1, Paul sums up this teaching, thus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Living in the moment is a mantra for a secular age where self is God, and so it's not hard to see why we end up curved in on self rather than outwards to others and upwards towards God. We go to get the buzz, live for the experience, the job, the house, the holiday overseas, the sex, get it now, get the life that you want now, and we create a bucket list because we think this is all there is. What should I have get done before I, before there's no more? Ashley Madison is, or was, I don't know, uh, I've read about it in the paper, <laughs> was, is an online dating app for married people wanting affairs. And they tweeted many years ago, they tweeted this, they tweeted, I quote, life is short, have an affair. Life is short, premise, conclusion, have an affair. I tweeted them back, I reject the premise and therefore the conclusion. Life is not short, it is eternal. And may I recommend my wife, Laura Moffat's podcast, Small Wonders, In the Curve, for your edification. But for the believer pressing into God, touched by God, the existential vacuum spoken by Viktor Frankl is filled by the love of God and a longing for new birth of the self and of the universe. And so his work, the Holy Spirit's work in you, gives you a longing, realistic, transforming hope. Let me pray. Father, you have spoken um, by your prophets, by the life of Jesus, by the word of the apostle right here in Romans 8, and you're still speaking to us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us. Take us towards you, away from sin, to a life of service of others and of hope, even in suffering. I pray for my friends here today, particularly who are going through a dark time. Touch us and lift us up. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.